cinema has remained relatively unchanged since its inception in 1890. But how we live our lives outside the cinema has gone through massive change. The cinema is one of the oldest medias. It preceded mostly all of them, including radio. Even though now we can watch any movie on any screen at any price, often much less than a movie ticket, we still love going to the big screen. Director of Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet, David Lynch, explains why. Now, if you're playing the movie on a telephone, you will never in a trillion years experience the film. You'll think you have experienced it, but you'll be <clears throat> cheated. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. So now we've established that movies don't work on phones, let's talk to Chris Panzetta, who is at the intersection of technology and filmmaking. And it looks a bit scary. If you could say that we're going to create Dunkirk so believable that it's like you're there, would you really want to do it? Like, would, you re- would everyone actually really want to experience what it's like? And that's an interesting problem with VR today because film has this idea of a fourth wall where you're protected by the screen. You can watch something terrifying like Dunkirk and feel removed from that. Virtual reality, you don't have that fourth wall. You're not protected. And Future Sandwich favourite Nick Hodges explores some of the myths that we need to squash about how Hollywood is innovating. There's this really interesting story about the use of data in, in creating stories and, you know, the, the use of analytics to, to, you know, craft who should be in a film and, you know, uh, who, who should direct it and things like this. And the reality when you look at it is completely different. Um, so it's a fantastic story that, you know, House of Cards was essentially created by data. It's fundamentally wrong, though. And next, we talk to creator of Golden Globe-winning TV series, Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail, about how to survive in Hollywood. When you set out to tell a story, you are not telling a, just one linear story from beginning right, exactly. to end as a TV show or a movie. You are now embracing all the different avenues people can consume storytelling. And finally, if you're done with paying $30 for a ticket to the movies, you'll love our chat with Shane Thatcher, co-founder of Australian startup, Chuvi. So it's basically trying to model the demand of every every single movie session yeah, and then attach the appropriate price to it. I am Tommy McCubbin, creative director, startup founder, dad and podcaster, and this is Future Sandwich, the podcast that has a sandwich with people making the future happen today. Welcome to episode 13, Cinema's Sequel. The 2D window has given us our best memories of our childhood. We can all recall our first cinema experience. Mine was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when I was seven years old. And here is Christopher Nolan, director of Dunkirk and many others, on the power of his first memories of cinema. Well, I mean, if you're talking about raw sort of cinematic impact, yeah. you know, I always have to talk about George Lucas's first Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I was seven years old when it came out. Anybody my age, that's a seminal film. It's, it's just the, the film that shows you the possibilities of cinema. Um, that The success of that was followed uh, about a year later by a re-release of Kubrick's 2001. Mm-hmm. And my dad took me to see that on a huge screen in Leicester Square in London when I was seven years old still, I think, almost eight. And that made an incredible impression on me as well. Just that feeling of how the screen can just be a portal to another dimension. I mean, just be this, this whole other, other world or set of worlds. 
So when we started researching the future of Hollywood, we struggled to uncover what was the real story here. What are the factors that will threaten or help the movie business thrive? Technology is clearly having an impact. And if we want to know how, we need to talk to Chris Panzetta, founder of company S121, or story first, technology second. Um, cool. Well, S1T2 started out of university, essentially, and what we originally wanted to do was just actually make films, ironically, for this episode. So we had a film production society at uni. We just loved making films, and then we left, and then we realized there was not really much opportunity to make films. <laughs> um, so... A longer story, which I'll keep short. We had a couple of actual developers join the team, ironically, which was strange because film and development back, and this was back in 2008, about 10 years ago now. So it wasn't really an obvious pairing, but that was really cool because it led us or it taught me to explore other ways you could tell stories through emerging technologies and interactive mediums. And so really that's kind of what the name kind of inherits and stands for itself now is Story first, technology second is this idea that, you know, story has such a history, it's such has such a kind of a, almost a biological connection with us now. That story hasn't changed throughout our history, but the technologies we use to tell stories always serve that and always change and evolve how we kind of understand ourselves through story. So we're always interested in kind of exploring emerging technologies and what affordances they can give us to help kind of change how we communicate story, I guess, yeah. And as Chris is one of those people driving cinema's next chapter, where does the classic cinema experience sit? But I really think there's something about the social element to cinema that's not going to change. Like, people like to go to dinner, go with their friends to the movie, even though you sit there in the dark. And it's kind of great because it's like, you get to see your friends, but you don't have to talk to them all the time either. So it's kind of this nice social situation. And I think we've seen people try and change cinema like they tried the whole movement for 3d cinema hasn't really worked so the same and i think the the best way to predict the future with these things is look at other mediums that are older like the book went through rapid change where you had chapters contents those type of things and then it stopped changing for a long time um or at least it changed slower poems changed slower so i think film comparatively to human existence is still young it's like a hundred and something years but i think it's gone through its rapid iteration now it's like a mature format it's an people we call it art now so i don't think it's going to evolve too much in 50 years to be honest like you know you predict in the future always going to be wrong but i think it's it knows what it's good at now it really does and the, like that's why it can be so compelling i think the biggest for me the biggest change for me with story is in this whole idea of interactive story so now we see with game engines and that's where vr and ar will have a big part is that suddenly you've got an interactive environment. So how does an interactive story work? Because cinema is really good at telling one story to hundreds of people in the audience, but everyone interprets their own individual story. But what happens when you can interact with the story and it changes based on you and you use it almost as like, for example, you become the hero in the story. That's, I think that is the major innovation that we're going to see in the next 50 years with these emerging technologies. So those sounds and everything like that will be heighten your sensory experience. But how we learn from story, how we engage with it, and the cognitive level it asks of us is going to change a lot, I think, in the 50 years, once this idea of game engines gets developed with VR and stuff like that. And virtual reality, is it a threat, an opportunity, or something completely different? 
Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't think it's a threat. I mean, everyone thought television was going to be a threat and kill cinema because it was kind of the same thing in your own household. But that hasn't changed things. Cinema is like you know the same way we haven't lost books, we haven't lost poetry, all those type of things. We don't tend to replace mediums in our life. We kind of they have their place. They're good at certain things that VR aren't good at, and that's why that's one of the reasons I don't think it'll be a threat. Like VR is a very different way of communicating story,、um, largely through experience. But I definitely think those two industries will complement each other quite largely. We've already done.、Um, so, for example, we did an experience for Ford in Shanghai, which is, has six people in the experience together, and it's interactive. So the idea is they get shrunk, they go down into the engine, they go into a jungle and get stepped on by elephants, and they go to a racetrack. But they do all this together because I think the one thing, like the reason we like the movies, the reason we like. Books, all those things are always about people. So you can't have, no matter how hard we try as well, you can't program people. So that when you get people in a VR experience, you get this all this extra、um, engagement for free, which is great. So we're already doing that.、Um, lots of people are already doing that. I definitely think social VR is the future of VR because one of the great things is, I mean, we're talking to each other with Skype now, but in the future we'll be able to be like feel more present with each other. In a virtual environment, even though you're other sides of the world, so yeah, I think that's a no-brainer.、Um, I don't think you'll be watching VR. I think the thing to remember though is VR is never going to be really something you just watch.、Uh, it's too immersive for that, and that's can be a problem because it means like the same way you play a game. Sometimes you have to be engaged. And films, you know, we like to veg out sometimes, like in a good comedy. So how do you interact with a comedy? <laughs> so those things can be hard questions to answer. And again, why it will be different from cinema. If you could say that we're going to create Dunkirk so believable that it's like you're there, would you really want to do it? Like, would you really? Would everyone actually really want to experience what it's like? And that's an interesting problem with VR today because film has this idea of a fourth wall where you're protected by the screen. You can watch something terrifying like Dunkirk and feel removed from that. Virtual reality, you don't have that fourth wall. You're not protected,、uh, and it's kind of get it gets in the way. In the last ten years, really, in the last five years, this idea of story universes in Hollywood. So you see it with the Marvel series, you see it with Disney, like, and with Star Wars. So there's the film, there's the book, there's the ride, there's the game, and I think VR will be there's the experiences and there's the augmented experiences, which is great because it's just this idea that a story is ubiquitous and bigger than any one medium, and then we kind of have different ways to tell these stories through these mediums. So yeah, I just I think it'll be a complementary to the industry.、Um, I don't think、uh, yeah, but I don't think it'll be a threat. So Chris just mentioned the story universe. An awesome example of this was recently announced by Disney when they unveiled the plans for the Star Wars Hotel, a hotel that is a completely immersive experience into the galaxies of Star Wars. When you check in, you get fitted with a costume. Mom, Dad, and the kids all dress like little Jedi's. Then you'll get a brief on the story currently playing out inside the hotel and the role you'll be playing in it. There will be droids delivering room service. The cantina band will be playing in the bar and the lobby, and it's set to be every Star Wars fan's dream come true. Let's cut to an interview from Recode, a brilliant podcast hosted by Kara Swisher, which talks candidly with the who's who of tech, media, and business. All the links to Recode will be in the show notes at futuresandwich.com. This is Kara talking to Sam Esmail, creator of Mr. Robot, the series essentially about hackers and the complexities behind their potential and motivations in society. But one of the things that's 
important to me is that technology is also a situation that's ruining their business. Like really ruining it. Really, has at the moment the Rubicon has been crossed. People are streaming on phones. They're uh, Google and uh, Amazon and Netflix are sort of disrupting well, the business incredibly. So there's a real fear of the technology. And too. and that the, it's the fear that's going to kill them, not the technology. I mean, mm-hmm. look at Netflix. They've mm-hmm. pounced on that. They've mm-hmm. taken that as an opportunity to say, well, if no one else wants to embrace the technology, if no one else wants to say, hey, no, this isn't something to be scared of, but an opportunity to expand and to offer Mm -hmm. entertainment in a way that wasn't offered before, um, then we'll do it. And they're doing it really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the thing. It's not about, because I mean, even the way films are made right now, they're they're talked about as universes, franchises, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's not you know it's not just about one movie anymore. It's about how many movies can you make off that one movie, and how many toys can you make, and how many video games, and uh, you know it's like now this whole kind of universe. See, to me, it's still an antiquated way of thinking because you know when you I watch agree. all movies, I, I think I think I watched Mr. Robot on my phone the right. whole time. Like, how do you, as a creator, how do you think about that? Are, are there other creators like you? You're obviously illuminated about technology but do they understand what's what's happening when google becomes the studio when facebook becomes critically important to distribution of entertainment i don't know if they do and and this is the worry worrisome part for example we're doing you know like i just uh advertised a (laughs) few minutes ago we're doing a book but the book is not a marketing opportunity Mm -hmm. for the show the book mm-hmm. is its own standalone thing, and it's an interactive thing. It's mm-hmm. not just a book that you read, but there's layers to it, a little bit like uh, that J.J. Abrams book, S. So it's it's that's a thing. And then we've got, we had a mobile game that we released, which is awesome, and that mm-hmm. that is a story. So it's not just a game that you play and, you know, and again, just another marketing marketing fodder for the show. It's its own story. And every and all these little pieces you can sort of embrace and that's sort of the universe building. That's the world building of the future. That's why when, if Google becomes a studio or Facebook becomes a studio, oh, we also did a VR film. Mm-hmm. Which is also another story that's kind of like in between a couple of episodes. Facebook and Google, from, yeah, in that case. So that that's when you when you set out to tell a story, you are not telling a, just one linear story from beginning right, exactly. to end as a TV show or a movie. You are now embracing all the different avenues people can consume storytelling. Is the entertainment industry intelligent enough to? embrace this in that way i mean they do it in pieces but it seems so grudging it's still well, seems, after the, all what, i keep saying i come down here and they're like well television is bigger than ever i go nobody's watching television right. it's like they're watching things on screens right you know what i mean or they don't well, know, it's just a, it's like almost they wish it was done but it's, it's not it's weird it's the the marketing mm-hmm. they're, they're they look at all that other stuff as marketing mm-hmm. uh we'll do like a little like vr thing mm-hmm. and it'll just be like you can walk around mars and that'll mm-hmm. be the that'll get them to watch the martian or mm-hmm. whatever I think that's where it needs to evolve. Where they're like, wait a minute, this isn't just marketing. This is this, this is, is just thing. new form. This is what what we're doing, you know. Um, and it all has to make sense. And it all start starts from the beginning and starts from the creator, or the writer, or director, or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, the minute it starts, just kind of being pushed away and it's like no we still got to like service the one big thing that's going to take a lot of time and it'll just be the economics of it mm-hmm. i mean eventually someone's going to come up with a big movie or whatever it is a big thing a big universe mm-hmm. and they're going to start it from the beginning and they're going to utilize every faction every screen mm-hmm. um and it's going to be an entire experience and it's going to kind of prove the model can you imagine making a full vr 
experience, and that's the thing. Could you imagine making yeah. whatever? I don't even want to call it a show. I don't know what to call it. And, I don't know what to call it either. Yeah. VR. Yeah. Um, yeah, I absolutely would. But I don't think that's an answer either. I don't... I don't, yeah, you don't want the, thing the idea is, is that you're connecting all of these things mm-hmm. into one experience, into mm-hmm. one story, mm-hmm. one storytelling universe, if you want to call it that. Um, and I'm not just talking about sequels and prequels and right. whatever. <laughs> I'm talking about legitimately saying, no, we're, you know, you will deepen your experience of the characters of the world by going into these other places. So let's look at what's happening today. How are the role of filmmakers being affected by technologies? Is data and artificial intelligence going to start making the human craft obsolete? Nick Hodges doesn't think so. Okay. Um, I'll caveat this by saying that at various times, and currently I have worked and do work for companies that own film companies, uh, but, but, but I will caveat that caveat by saying I don't know a lot about how the industry works from that sort of experience. Um, it's more from the outside. Uh, there are a couple interesting areas just when we talk about the world of content, I guess. I think there's a lot of myths going around about content, whether that's television or whether it's movies or, or whatever. I think the first thing is that there's this really interesting story about the use of data in, in creating stories and, you know, the, the use of analytics to, to, you know, craft who should be in a film and, you know, uh, who, who should direct it and things like this and the reality when you look at it is completely different um, so it's a fantastic story that you know House of Cards was essentially created by data it's fundamentally wrong though um, House of Cards was shopped around for a long time it was well and truly established what that what that series was going to be yes there was some data used in the decision making no there wasn't in the decision making to, for, for Netflix to purchase the series, not in making the series. Ted Sarandos, who's in at Netflix, you know, he's an old Hollywood guy. Hollywood runs by the gut. So there's this massive myth that, you know, data is, is, uh, is you know, changing the world of, of that sort of creativity that's fundamentally not true. There's, there's, there's some other myths, I think, that are interesting, you know, around the golden age of content and around you know all these shows that are successful and that are totally changing the face of things and you know you look at you know things like stranger things things like house of cards and and you know the people listening to this podcast you know go you know sort of look at the world of content they go oh it's fundamentally changing look how it's all changing it's becoming all this big budget stuff you know house of cards had uh the last season of house of cards had an average audience in the u.s of around five million people this last season, sadly, I know this season nine of the Big Bang Theory, average US audience of 20 million people. You know, there's no algorithms, there's no magic used in creating the Big Bang Theory. It's a bunch of writers that know what they're doing and a bunch of producers that are able to make it happen. So I think that there's a lot of myths around content that are, they're, they're really nice stories, but they're fiction. And what does Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, etc., mean for the movie business? Is it a threat? or an opportunity? When it comes to films, when it comes to TV, and those two things are quickly becoming the same thing when it comes to um, scripted entertainment, is that there's not a winner yet. And the internet has done so much to, to so many different categories of businesses, and yet this sort of movie entertainment TV business is, a, uh, is, is, is unique because it requires craft, it requires money, it requires talent. 
And so, you know, what happened to journalism can't happen to TV and movies um, because you can't just steal an episode of Stranger Things and go and, you know, remake it as, you know, as a slightly different story, which is what happens in journalism or, you know, in the case of the Daily Mail and the like, they don't even bother making it something different. They would just literally nick Stranger Things and republish it. You can't do that with content. You know, content is a forward investment. It's a huge forward investment, even and especially actually the Netflixes and the Hulus of the world are making huge forward investments. Um, you know, Hulu and Amazon now are investing, you know, billions and billions of dollars into content. And it's a huge forward investment that when you look at their balance sheets, you know, they, they, they have to push forward a long way into the future. So, yeah, the, the, this craft part of content is still really key and there is actually a small number of people in the world that can, that can create it. And so what we've seen in the last probably 12 months is a really interesting scenario, which is a lot of the people that were creating great television and movies started to see the effect that Netflix was having um, on their industry and Amazon, actually. And that effect was the creation of consumer surplus. The fact that Netflix and Amazon are happy to lose money. And what that means is that they're not valuing the content that's being created high enough. In Amazon's case, they just want to get people into the Amazon ecosystem, into Prime. In Netflix's case, they just want to drive up the share price. So they're happy to lose money. And, and Amazon obviously has, doesn't make any money on their content. Netflix tries to convince people they do, but Netflix has a negative free cash flow. So they're not a profitable company. And what happened over the past 12 months is a lot of people in the, that are creating movies and television, people in Hollywood, started to realise that essentially this meant their content isn't being valued highly enough. And they started to make decisions not to work for Netflix and, and, and Amazon and, and, and these companies that they thought weren't valuing their content enough. And in the world of TV and movie entertainment, you can do that and you can move the dial. Uh, in the world of journalism, that's not possible. Uh, except for a very few number of journalists. If one journalist turns down a job, you just go to the next one and give it to it. But in the world of content creation, you know, these people can actually come together and start to move the dial. To survive, you have to make great film. It, uh, uh, and yes. Um, Less about distribution. <laughs> yeah, look, distribution isn't, distribution isn't not a challenge, but making great content in the world of TV and films is still absolutely key which makes it sound easy because it's not because you can still create fantastic content but your two biggest competitors um, are running consumer surpluses um, and Amazon is never going to stop running a consumer surplus because their content business is simply the front door to the rest of their business. Um, so the key challenge for entertainment companies now is, is how do you survive when your competitors don't have to make money. So the business of making films is in a state of flux. But what about how cinemas are making money? A cool way data and analytics will make a difference to your movie experience is brought to you by our next guest, Shane Thatcher, co-founder of Tuvi. So I'm an economist by trade and I've also done a few startups previously and because Sonia and I are partners, we go to the movies a lot. Um, so we're big fans of the cinema and we'd go to the movies and then say it'd be quarter six on a Wednesday and there'd be kind of five or six people in a theatre of 200 and that kind of really frustrates me. So the, the underlying uh, algorithm in Tuvi is basically looking to estimate how popular a session is. So obviously if it's Friday night, Rogue One's just come out, it's a popular session so it's probably going to fill. So the algorithm would 
would say exactly that. But then if it's, say, a French film on a Monday night, then um, maybe in week six, then... It'll be all right. No, it won't be anybody there. So the algorithm will estimate what the demand profile for that particular movie session combination would be and then say, okay, for that session, if you want people to come, we think this price would be appropriate. So it's basically trying to model the demand of every, every single movie session yeah, and then attach the appropriate price to it. Dunkirk, for my mind, that's a movie that I should see in the cinema and I'm willing to pay 20 bucks for because I know I'm going to get a good experience and therefore it's a low risk. But another movie who doesn't fit your kind of preference set, you say, oh, that's not really worth 20 bucks for me because it's not my kind of thing. But what we're hoping with that and in Chuvi is that if there's a ticket for, say, 7 or $8 on a different night where it's not so popular, you might say, actually, that movie that I wouldn't normally see that's kind of worth having a look at because my, the risk of going to see it's just been reduced. So maybe you go to see that and you actually quite like that genre of film. And then maybe that moves you to another genre of film. So instead of people always going to exactly what they always go to, you start to get people into the cinema to see different types of films and hopefully that expands their kind of range of experiences that they're getting. So that is the end of episode 13. All the links to all of the stuff that we've begged, borrowed and stealed for will be at futuresandwich.com. I'd like to thank my best mates David Lynch and Christopher Nolan for their interviews and uh, Pete Savers from Popcorn for letting us borrow them. Big shout out to Chris Panzetta from uh, Story First, Technology Second. That was an awesome interview. Very grateful to give us your time. And also Shane Thatcher from Chuvi, an awesome app. Download it now at chuvi.com.au. And Kara Swisher, please don't sue us. We love Recode. Your interview with Sam Esmail was ace. And to Nick Hodges, find out more about Nick Hodges at Blonde3.com. Do yourself a favor. Check it out. It's awesome. And I'd like to introduce Andre. Andre has come onto the Future Sandwich team and made my life a lot easier. Okay, it's Andre Pinheiro here. And I'm a creative at Thinkerbell. And now head writer and podcaster with Tommy. Thank you. It's, a been, an, it's been an honor. Okay, that was shitty. Let's do it again. <laughs> We're going to run with that one. That's the idea. We'll see you next week. <laughs> this is good. I love it. <laughs>